On again, trot and walk and trot. Jingle, 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 squeak, 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 smell of hot horse, smell of hot self, blinding glare, headache, and nothing at all different for mile after mile. Tashban would never look any further away. The mountains would never look any nearer. You felt this had been going on for always. Jingle, 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 squeak, 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 smell of hot horse, smell of hot self. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. Thank you guys for joining us today. Just a reminder that today we're talking about the third book in the series, The Horse and His Boy. But general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we do go on a tangent into other stories we enjoy. So we'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's anything too far out there. But today we are discussing The Horse and His Boy, Chapter 9, Across the Desert. Across the desert we go. Chase, I'd love to give us a summary of this chapter real quick. So Laz exclaims how dreadful the conversation they overheard had been and freaks out uh, and, and how freaked out she was. But Erebus is only focused on escaping. Laz just wants to go home and doesn't want any part of the plan anymore. But Erebus says if she doesn't help her, she's going to yell, get them both captured and killed by the Tisrock. Laz leads the way down the steps to the great tiered gardens that led down to the river. Rushing in the dark, Erebus doesn't stop and appreciate the full beauty of the place. But even then, she remembers the gardens for years to come. They reach the bottom of of the river, and Erebus apologizes to Laz for being a pig, saying she did like her dress and her home, and uh, hoped that she had a good life, even though they want different things. The two part ways with Erebus getting in a boat across the river and finding her way to the tombs, where she retrieves the horses and finds Shasta. Erebus quickly tells them all about Rabidash's plan, and they agree that they need to make their way quickly. And they go and ride through the night. Shasta tells them about the right path uh, to get across the desert, and they set off. At first, it was nice riding through the cool, quiet night, but as the hours went on, it got tiring and cold. And after a, after a while, a streak of light appeared on the horizon and the gray sand turned gold and their shadows appeared long. And in the light, you could see the double peak of Mount Tyre where they were going and adjusted their course. And looking back, they could see Tashban was small and remote in the distance. And as the day went on, the mountain never looked any near and Tashban never looked any further away. The glare of the sand made their eyes ache and got hot enough to where Shasta could not walk on his bare feet. Get this man some shoes! This seemed to go on endlessly until they came to a massive rock where they found some shade to eat and drink and no one spoke. And they continued on as the sun crossed the sky and their shadows began to once more draw longer to the east and the merciless glare passed. Finally, Shasta yelled out, there it is. And they came upon a valley where they climbed upon, uh, climbed up between rocky walls in the moonlight. There they began to come upon vegetation and they heard the trickle of water and that trickle of water became a brook and the brook became a stream and the stream became a river. And finally they became, they found a place where the water had pooled into a broad pool. Uh, Shasta slipped off breeze back and they all went into the water to drink and be refreshed and they all laid down on the grass. And after about 10 minutes, the careful wind said they mustn't go to sleep if they want to keep ahead of Rabidash. But even with this, they all slipped into slumber. 
Erevis awoke first. The sun was already high in the sky, and she blamed herself as she woke the others. Bree said she wanted to take his time, or said he wanted to take his time and have some grass first, while Erevis pointed out that they were not in Archenland yet. Bree pushed back, saying he wasn't going to leave without a snack. And Quinn piped up to say that she also felt incredibly tired, but also that she knows that horses can be pushed further than the tiredness they are feeling now. Bree talks down to her, saying he would know more about campaigns and forced marches, marches than she does. And although Quinn doesn't answer, the author lets us know that she was indeed right, and Bree had lost some willpower now that he was free from his slavery. So they waited for Bree to have this snack, and they went on, and it was Quinn who had to set their pace as Bree took it a bit easier with everything. He did indeed. Uh, and the theme, Cal, for this chapter is exhaustion. The exhaustion of walking across a really long desert. And C.S. Lewis does love to tell us about walking. This is where him and, C- and, uh, and his good old buddy J.R.R. are really fond of just letting us know about the, the adventure, the journey. And sometimes you don't need to, but I guess in this case, they, they felt like they really needed to. And yeah. I feel like the, uh, the thought when you can walk through the wilderness. Right. But unlike in the, you know, the walking scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, this one, I think, really sets the tone of that. We talked about exhaustion and this this sense of just growing hopelessness and, you know, the ache and the weariness that comes from traveling in, a, in such a place in such a way. And I think, you know, it starts off the chapter with the line, how dreadful, how perfectly dreadful. Granted, this is Laz talking about uh, how frightened and how overwhelmed she is. And so maybe she needs to calm down. But it almost is setting the tone for like, hey, this is about to be a rough journey ahead, right? Yeah. And to be fair, she did just go through a traumatic experience. Like, they could have been killed at any moment. They could have been caught at any moment. Like, she's scared for a reason. Absolutely. If the Tisrock is willing to send his son to his death, he's willing to kill some random chick. Like, Absolutely, it makes sense that she's shaking all over and it's not crazy that she just wants to go home and like, <sighs> but Erevis is like, nah, I do not, like, not, not worth taking this time. I do like that. It says like Lazarine is like, you're so unsympathetic. And then like two lines later, it's like Erevis decided it was no occasion for mercy. So I guess that's true. <laughs> she yeah. is unsympathetic. She's like, nope, don't care. She like, in fact does not sympathize. <laughs> yes. Thanks for for letting us know. Uh, And then uh, Erebus basically decides, hey, if you say another word about going back or not following through with this plan, I'm going to rush out of this passage and scream so that the Tizrock hears me and that we will both be caught. And then Laz is like, but we shall both be killed. And she pulls a real like Scooby-Doo and Shaggy right now. And then, you know, didn't you hear what the Tizrock, may he live forever, said? And, and like she goes, yes, and I'd sooner rather be killed than married to a hosta. Uh, and so, but didn't you hear how wise and important and nice he was? But like, also no. Yeah, uh, it, it is funny. There are two different perspectives of a hosta after that conversation that we witnessed last last chapter. Because Laz yeah. is like, wow, he's really respectable. Like. He's so wise, and even when they were kicking him, like he still did pretty good. Yeah, and he was so solid. Eris is just like, nah, he's some dude's whipping boy, and like, why, why would I respect him anymore? In fact, he's the worst. Yeah, 
She calls him a hideous, roveling slave who flatters when he's kicked, but treasures it all up and hopes to get his own back by egging on that horrible Tisrock to plot his son's death. I'd sooner marry my father's scullion than a creature like that. Tell us how you really feel, Erebus. Marrying a scullion, like, sounds great. You'd have such good food all the time. Yeah, not not the worst thing that could happen. But as they're as they're escaping, I love this line that C.S. Lewis kind of includes in here. And he goes, one of the drawbacks about adventures is that when you come to the most beautiful places, you are often too anxious and hurried to appreciate them. Uh, I just think that's a really sweet line. And it, you know, harkens back to Ferris Bueller, you know. Yeah, it's a nice line. It does give the hint that he's going to spend a lot of time appreciating scenery throughout this chapter. He's like, guys, you want to hear some descriptions of sand? You're in luck. We're going to a giant desert. Hey, have you ever thought about how many different ways you can describe someone's shadow? Because I have. Their shadow on sand. Sand is this color. It could be gray or black in the night it could be golden your shadow can go to the west when it's early in the day and east when it's later in the day it could hurt your eyes it could cause headaches it could burn your feet you want to hear the the sounds that are different sand guys it's crazy uh and then you know cue anakin you know i hate sand Uh, but so uh they they have this discussion they're escaping through uh and you get a really uh, like it's a line in here that really points towards the fallibility of making a human your your objective moral center, you know, and the some of the fallibility of like fascism or you know deification of a human. Where she's as soon as you know Erevis is saying all these things about the Tisrock, she goes, "How can you say such dreadful things?" And about the Tisrock, may he live forever. Two, it must be right if he's doing it. Like, is this a jab at the Pope? Who it could be. I mean, it is. It is Britain. Don't come for me, Catholics. <laughs> but it's a thing where it's like, if if he says it, if he does it, and he is infallible, it must therefore be good. It must be true. And that's yeah. like, it's an interesting little uh, like one comment in here about how like, no, nah, you like humans are fallible. And you shouldn't, like, no human is obviously worthy of making, like, your moral center and your moral compass because everyone, no matter how good, is fallible. Yeah. It also kind of feels like it might be a jab at Islam again about Muhammad. But we can move on from that. It's a really sweet scene of Erebus and Laz parting ways. Yeah. They they move past their, uh, I'm going to scream and get us both killed. No! Uh, into like, hey, I'm really sorry that I was rude. I'm just trying to get away. And also, like, I really liked your dress. Like, your dress was really pretty and your house was really nice. And also, like, I hope you have a great time, even though, like, I wouldn't do it. But, like, it seems nice for you. Yeah, it's it's a good way. Like, it's a sign of Erevis maturing that she's, like, taking these steps of being like, hey, you want this. This is your life. I'm happy for you. Yeah, it's the first time that she's truly either apologized or really like acknowledged someone else's feelings in a situation in this book. 
Absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, Erebus and Laz part ways. Peace out, Laz. We won't see you again. It's been real. It's been fun. Most importantly, it's been real fun. Uh, but Erebus takes off. She makes her way over to the tombs uh, where we realize that even though she is brave, she, she like Shasta and the rest, are also still scared of the tombs. Uh, she sends away the uh, guy who was watching the horses. She gets Bree and Huynh back uh, and uh, you know they see Shasta coming by and Bree goes, thanks be to the lion, uh, which at this point in the story, lions have only been bad. They have only tried to kill them and like I know that Shasta or that Bree knows at least about Aslan, but it still just feels out of place. Yeah, it feels weird that he would have Narnian sayings having never been to Narnia. This is but true. Also, the whole like I don't know. If I were them, I'd be like, maybe this Tash guy's got more to say. <laughs> that what I actually do want to say with this section is like Erebus setting away the uh the groom, the guy who was watching the horses for her. Mm-hmm. It's really funny because she pays him and tells him to go back to his mistress, like where he lives, but he literally can't like, not only is he scared of the tombs being out here, but also the city gates are closed. Like it's the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. She basically made this guy have to sleep outside the gate for the night just because she had to go out a different way. Like, why didn't she just dress up as a groom and carry the horses out herself? This could have been so much simpler, but, you know, whatever. It is what it is. But then everyone would recognize me. And what would they say? Yeah. It's it's a whole thing. But uh, so she sends the guy off and then Erebus tells them all about Rabidash's plan. uh, And then Bree responds, Treacherous hounds and attack in a time of peace without defiance since, but we'll grease his oats for him. We'll be there before he is. We're going to grease his oats? What? <laughs> I, I'm i guessing that grease ruins oats, right? Like, so, but I mean, unless you're like putting a little bit of baking grease into oatmeal, which I could imagine might be okay. But, like, why is this a say? Like, is this a common thing that happens? Like, greasing people's oats? Like, there's a lot of things that you could pour in oats that would make them not good. And you'd get, oh, arsenic in his oats. Like, yeah, that would also suck. But is that a common thing? Like, I don't know what it means, but I know I don't want my oats greased. That doesn't sound, <laughs> that doesn't sound like the move. Hey, dude, to each his own, man. Uh, but uh, they, uh, they're like, okay, like, let's go. And then um, Erebus is like, okay, he said he was going to start at once. And Bree's like, that's just how humans talk. Like, you don't get a company of 200 horses and horsemen watered and victualed and armed and saddled and started all in a minute. Fair enough. But yeah. also, like, you're still on a time crunch. Yeah, it's like, a good point. And also, I mean, we realized late at the end of this chapter that Bree is unclear about whether or not this is the shortcut or the long way. Yeah, they're about to take so a lot of miscommunication here. Um, and so they Shasta tells them where to go. They're like, Hey, we got to go this direction. Uh, and Bree is gonna, he's like, Hey, we got to rotate between trotting and walking, uh, because we just can't, you know, ride the whole time. Which you're definitely seeing a lot of the like hesitancy in Bree right now, and they're gonna talk about that later in this chapter. Um, 
of like how he can't just you know be this like warhorse uh, that like runs through the night it's like now we have to take turns which is fair but it's also like is this accurate yeah it it does feel like this one is more like hey it's not like the movies you can't just like go at full sprint the entire way across the desert you do have to pace yourself so that you can get there yeah later in this chapter it definitely feels like Bree is getting a little bit lazy or he's letting his tiredness change his his reason yeah, absolutely but yeah i mean i i've played enough video games where if you hold the sprint button down for too long eventually your 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 person your horse whatever is going to get tired and you gotta gotta rebuild that energy back up so you can sprint again yeah if you let link's uh little ring get down to red then he's gonna have to slow down and like go at a crawl pace for a few seconds Link's gonna go have to kill some chickens and break some pots like he's gonna have to He's, he's just a thing he's gonna do. But uh, so they decide they take off and it's not so bad at the first part. You know, it's cool. It's not hot. Uh, you know, it seems all right. But that quickly changes because as the light of the moon creeps up, Shasta notices nothing but vast gray flatness all around them. But Chase, I do think it's an important note here. Um you know, C.S. Lewis wants to make sure that we know the difference between the sound that hooves make on the road versus the sound that hooves make on the sand. So obviously the sounds that hooves make on the road is property property. And obviously the sound that, you know, you may not have known um, the sound that hooves make on the sand is thubbity thubbity. Yeah. Real, it's it's a subtle difference. Property, property versus thubbity, thubbity. It's, um, it's good that we get to see that in writing to really, really sound it out. I was curious myself, you know, what does this sound like? Because I've only ever heard a you know a horse on the road, not on the sand. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that you know I can hear the thubbity, 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 thubbity. Uh, and but in all honesty, when I'm reading this, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and it makes me think of when Creed is like a temporary office manager uh, and he's he's trying to come up with the acronyms and he's like, Bobody, what does it mean? Go. <laughs> Bobody. I mean, it's basically he's saying the difference between. That was not as pronounced as you were hoping for. Probably not. <laughs> Chase is really trying to go for this right now. Uh, I don't have a lot of props. I actually have a room full of props, but not not for that. Chase, Chase is about to go and find a like a marimba. He's gonna get some like little sand makers. He's gonna get like Chase is gonna go into full sound effect editing mode. Uh, <laughs> but C.S. Lewis, thank you for this description of the sounds that hooves make. We were curious and we needed to know. Yeah, uh, really the most important part about crossing the desert is if you're in the desert and no one's around to hear your hooves, do they make any sound? The answer? Apparently, yes. Yeah. They make a thubbity thubbity sound. Thubbity thubbity. Uh, it also sounds like someone with a lisp trying to say somebody like thubbity, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I apologize if that was offensive. I want to, I don't. 
it is a thing. It is. So let's move past that. Uh, but we then get a long description of them building their, this exhaustion in the desert. Uh, it says hours and hours after riding. Eventually, the sun is starting to peak up over the horizon and they start to walk because, um, you know, it's a little cooler now. And um, it's uh, then, you know, as the sun starts stretching ahead, they're able to see the mountain and they, you know, change their direction a little bit to, you know, get back on course. And, you know, it's just you feel this sense of building exhaustion coming. And then they, uh, they look back and it says, though Tashban looked very far away when they first saw it, it refused to look any further away as they went on, which is one, a testament to the size of Tashban, two, a testament to the vastness of this desert. Yeah. Like it shows how big the city is, but how they are just traveling so very far. Yeah. And I kind of got a sense of dread with that of like, we just want to get out of sight of the city. Like, yeah, we want to get to the place where we can't be followed. Right. But Do we feel safe now? If you're, if it never looks any further away, then part of you is like, well, can they see us? Like, but probably not. But it's just, yeah, it, it really does, like you said, just build and build and build this idea that they they're driving themselves to death. They're exhausted. Like you start to wonder, are you ever going to get to the other side? And then of course the sun comes up. Sun and, comes up. And then it becomes a problem. Whereas like when the moon was out, it was getting really cold when the sun came out. Well, now Shasta can't even walk anymore because his feet are burning and Aramis is judging him for having, not having shoes. It's just like, like get this guy some shoes. Is that so difficult? Like you were in a palace. I've got no shoes. Like she, he goes. You know, he's like, ah, I can't walk. I need to ride. And Bree's like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. Like, hop on. And then Shasta's like, it's all right for you, Erevis. You've got shoes on. And and it goes. Erevis said nothing, and she looked prim. Let's hope she didn't mean to, but but she did. And so yeah. it's like, it's like, ah, Erevis, you're, she just, she seems so like prissy in this moment where it's like, get him some shoes. Yeah. Also, C.S. Lewis has gone out of his way a bunch of times in this book to just like comment on Erevis's intentions and like. He wants us to make sure we know she's proud. Yeah. He wants us to know she's proud, but he also it's always in a weird way where he acts like he can't see inside her mind. Like, yeah. Cause other characters who will be like, well, what he actually meant was this, but with Erebus, it'll be like, well, let's hope she didn't mean that. Yeah. Um, that is true. That's a good point. But she, you know, she's got her, you know, resting prim face. Uh, and then it goes into this description that we read at the beginning of the chapter of the jingle, 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 squeak, 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 trot and walk, smell of hot horse, smell of hot self, and repeating, because just trying to build this sense of monotony and this dragging on of uh, of this journey uh, and how just overwhelming and exhausting and bearing it is on them. And then they make their way uh, to a little place, like a little rock where that just makes a little shadow. They can escape the sun for a little bit describes how they're trying to give a drink of water to the horses, but it's not easy to give horses 
a drink of water out of a skin of bottle. But yeah. I do like that it gives us the you know description of how they do that. Similarly to learning about the sound of hooves on sand, we have to learn about the shape of horse lips. Yeah. Now, how how they have a hard time drinking. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a move. It's it's a strong move from C.S. Lewis. I appreciate um, it. You know, it's things that I needed to know. Like, yeah. it's really, I was really stressed reading the start of this chapter. Like, ah, oh, but how are they going to let the horses drink water if they don't come to a stream? They just got a bottle of water. This is the worst. But, it, you know, so again, is this necessary, C.S. Lewis? Don't know. But it helps build this idea of just like exhaustion and, and weariness because it says like it's hard to get not, water. He's not vamping to fill space. He's trying yeah. to give more description. He's giving more description to build this this feeling and this sentiment because it's like they, you know, even though they were able to get a little bit, no one had enough. No one spoke. The horses were flecked with foam, which like if you've ever had a pet or an animal, you know that when your your dog or whatever uh, is dehydrated, if you've been walking when it's hot outside or something like that, the, the foam comes because they can't produce enough saliva uh, to, you know, make sure that it's like it's moist. It's It starts foaming up. Uh, so you're really getting this this physical sentiment of like, oh, they're like super dehydrated and their breathing was noisy. The children are pale. And as someone who has like experienced severe dehydration, like this is the worst. Like I feel this, you know, yeah. it, it does sound miserable. Like the entire thing, the entire chapter sounds miserable, but Absolutely. he really tries to make you feel it. But also public service announcement. If your pet starts foaming at the mouth, but refuses to drink water, it might be rabies. Could be. That is also true. Um, so try to get them some water. Uh, it, also, if they've been bitten by something, you know, that's a, a good thing to check. But hopefully your dog isn't rabid. Get your rabies shots. Yeah, do that. Do that. Yeah. Um, but they continue on their journey. And it's just more and more description of, of just lots of, uh, lots of traveling. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to see anything mile after mile and they still don't see anything. Uh, and then like they travel so long that the moon, the sun goes down, the moon starts coming up and they finally start seeing something and they start going downhill into this valley uh, and they make their way into the, they start seeing grass and vegetation and then where there's grass, that means there's water. They start seeing a little trickle of water and that trickle uh, turns into a little little stream or a little brook and that brook becomes a stream and that stream becomes a river and that river turns into a little cataract, a waterfall that you know has a big pool that everyone- In that pool was a log and on that log was a frog. Yay, we get it again, the frog in the bog. It's back. It's been a while. It did give me like the- the uh, brook to river to like that whole sequence really gave me a vibe. There's a part and I believe Ezekiel in the Bible. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where essentially the prophet is describing like, Hey, in the new creation in, in heaven, uh, there's going to be a river coming out from the throne of God. That's going to expand, and expand until it basically covers all creation with, living water is kind of the picture but yeah. uh yeah that that sequence of starting with a trickle that 
builds up to a brook, that builds up to a river, felt like it was doing a callback on on another image. Yeah, I I, I did like that. Uh, that's really sweet. That's fun. And so they they see this this pool of water, and everyone just goes straight, and they just jump in. They start drinking water. Uh, they are cooling themselves off. Shasta gets in and goes, "Ooh, this is nice." Uh, make sure that we give his description. Uh, and he stood in there, and it says it was perhaps the loveliest moment in his life, and that is great. But it also is so sad again for Shasta because it showed us that he's really not have that many lovely moments in his life. But also, you you grew up by the beach. You could go swimming before this time. Yeah, but swimming, I guess, just regularly versus, like, when you're super dehydrated and, like, sunburned. Yeah, I mean, getting water in you after almost dying, it just feels like a very, like, like, do you really need to almost die to feel feel better? Like, couldn't we find a happy medium? Yeah, you... Find some better moments, you know, have a lovely life. Uh, He's got the whole life, his whole life in front of him. Yeah. Uh, And it it could be great. Who knows? Uh, We do, but you know, we'll, we'll save that for another podcast, but uh, they all go in and they don't want to fall asleep because they've got to be quick. They've got to make sure that they beat Rabidash to, to Arshinland. They've got to make sure that they stay ahead of them, but they're so tired that they just pass out. And Erevis wakes up and she blames herself because she goes, you can't expect horses who've been going so hard to stay awake. And you, and that boy has no training. He's worthless. He doesn't even have shoes on. That boy. That boy. That shoeless boy. That that idiot. So she's, I mean, it's like she blames herself, which is like, okay, if you want to, I guess. But also, don't be rude about your reasoning. Don't be condescending here. I mean... She can't really not be condescending. It's that's all her a, fault. That's a big, she... It's a big personality characteristic of hers. Uh, and so they they start talking and they're like, why are we in such a rush? We've, we've got to be annihilating them on time. Like, there's no way because we're going a straight shot. Like, this is the shortcut. And then uh, Shasta's like, um, I never said this was a shortcut. Like, the, the Raven said this was a better path. And so they get into this. They realize there's been miscommunication about a shortcut and a better way. And uh, one tiny little moral lesson from C.S. Lewis, teaching mm-hmm. us that quicker is not always better. Yes, this is true. Uh, yeah, because he says it's better because there's a river this way. Uh, and like they're like, if this, it, like, this is, you know, it allows us to not die in the middle of the desert. Uh, and then Bree's like, well, I can't go without a snack, which fair enough, man, I respect that. I mean, like, sure. Quinn definitely becomes the voice of reason here, though. Like, yeah, like, we most most we dialogue we we can book. get there. Yeah, it's. Okay. I I hope that this is the start of her character arc. This is like, the start of something new. It feels it. so right to be here with you. Oh. That's weird. You singing a song? That's strange. Uh, but yeah, no, when is like, hopefully, like you're saying, hopefully this is a good part of her character arc. Yeah. This is a, like, she's, she's taking charge and she's like, Hey, like don't horses like can't, you know, when, when they're carrying humans, like who have spurs, like go way further than we are. Like, even when they're tired, like, I feel like we should be able to, and we should be able to go even further because we're Narnian horses. We're better. Uh, and then Bree 
super condescendingly is like, I think that I would know a little bit more about campaigns and forced marches and what a horse can do, madam. And then insert narrator voice. Bree, in fact, did not know more about what he was able to do. <laughs> yeah. It really teaches you the valuable lesson that if you want someone to work harder, you need to poke them with sharp metal. Yeah, this is this is an interesting little like little piece of dialogue and, and a little insertion from C.S. Lewis in here. Yeah, the commentary is what really kind of what are you trying to say here? Because he, he goes for for those who are not reading along with it, he goes one of the worst results of being a slave. And being forced to do things is that when there is no one to force you anymore, you will find you have almost lost the power of forcing yourself. Um, and from one point, this is really heavy. It, like, it's like, hey, like if you've lived your whole life being under the whip, like when you're free, obviously working is going to feel like slavery. Like it, it's going to, you know, and so it's like, yeah, like we, we can't imagine that. But then there's the other side of this. Where it's like, is is C.S. Lewis trying to make like a laziness argument? Like, yeah, he feel it kind of feels that way. It feels weird and also just not true. Like, yeah. it it feels like the like classic employer. Like, well, if I didn't do X Y Z, if I didn't withhold their paychecks, or if I didn't like drive them hard or yell at them or whatever then they wouldn't do their job right. Right. It's just, it completely misses the fact that the best kind of motivation is internal motivation, internalized motivation. Mm -hmm. Like a carrot on a stick is never going to drive someone more than like an internal will towards something. And that's, and that's something that's borne out in like actual human psychology and like studies not just like the logic that i think it does make actual sense right yeah it it really feels like you're seeing brie whose real goal was just i want to get to the other side versus when who feels like she's a little bit more bought into the no we need i to want freedom yeah i want to make sure that freedom still exists when we get there yeah um yeah, it's just a real interesting little like insertion here that's like, I think I see what you're trying to say, or it's like like Bree is broken mentally. Like he's he like his spirit has almost been broken, kind of thing. Yeah. But and like very tired. Like sure. Should not really judge him for where he's at at his worst. Sure. But, but it's just like it's a weird thing to say. It's it's a strange little insertion. Yeah. It, it feels like the danger of the way that C.S. Lewis drops these little comments in like this is that they can be interpreted to be like, like, even like the comment you made earlier, you could interpret this as being a weird race thing. Like, yeah. Because one of the racist arguments over the years, at least in American history, is that, oh, well, black people are just lazy. And no, that's not true. And, but like, this could be interpreted as an argument for that. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah. it's a dangerous path. Yeah. To go to. Almost or as dangerous as going directly through the desert instead of veering left. Mm. Thank goodness that you veered left. Um, but 
it, you know, this all aside, basically this leads us to, um, they, they, they get back on the, on their journey. And it, it says it was really Quinn, like, even though Bree, uh, is like, you know, going and he's taking things more gently, it's Quinn, though she was weaker and more tired of the two who was setting the pace. Like when is now the driving factor for this team? It's been Bree basically the whole time. And being on this front, I'm confident, I'm strong, I'm a war horse. And now it's Quinn going, Hey, like, like you said, I'm the one who wants this more. Like I'm the one who drive us, even though I'm weaker, like I'm not a war horse. Like I'm more tired because I'm not used to anything like this. I have the drive. So I will, you know, help us get there further and faster. Yeah. It definitely feels like that distinction between physical strength and moral strength which is absolutely uh, i mean helpful it, it should be part of the message here yeah it, it's definitely we've definitely glorified brie up to this point for being this physically strong one and i, I think it's twins time i hope it's twins time we hope we hope it's twins time to win uh sorry about that i just it it, it had to be done uh, but Chase, before we uh, dive further up and further in, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? I don't think so. Right on. I will start us off. Um, my further up and further in is the trope as the desert as despair, right? Uh, so the desert is often used as a metaphor for exhaustion, for endless despair, for hopelessness, uh, and comes up pretty often throughout literature and fiction as a whole. Think Star Wars and Tatooine. This is uh, the place where Luke was from. It's a desert planet. They're moisture farmers. Uh, it's the place that, that Luke wants to escape from because in the desert, in Tatooine, there's nothing. And that's also where his father, Anakin, would be born and raised. And that was the site of his own slavery and the uh, the issues that he had there. It's the place that they want to escape because with Tatooine with the desert is nothing but despair. Uh, think of if you've read the Dune series, uh, Arrakis uh, is this desert planet uh, that is seen as harsh and unlivable. Uh, and it's not until it's kind of terraformed that people start actually being able to thrive there uh, and, and really support life there. Think of the Wheel of Time, there's the Aiel Waste, the inheritance cycle uh, crossing the huge desert uh, is seen as this un impossible thing. You go through so many different like pieces of fiction and literature, and the desert is always meant to represent this this journey. This uh, you have to cross it to get to your goal. You have to go through it, but it's not where you want to be. It's the sign of hopelessness. It's the sign of despair. That's what leads you to something better. You have to go through the desert to get to the the oasis. You know, metaphorically speaking, to get to the place of life. But in the desert itself is death. That's where you're shaped. That's where you're weathered and um, you're, you're changed into the person that you're going to be. The hero finds their, their heroicness. Um, but in the desert itself, is it's difficult and it's challenging. And so just wanted to talk about that as a trope in fiction. Why did the horses cross the desert? To get to the other side? That's uh, it, it accurate to the story. Uh, yeah, that, that was basically the point of this chapter. Um, but yeah, so for my further up and further in, I just wanted to talk about the uh, allegory here of the wilderness as the test. Basically, 
When looking at an author who plays with as much biblical allegory as C.S. Lewis, you can't help but look at former slaves crossing the desert to the promised land and hear the pretty much one-to-one rings of the Bible. Uh, this is the Exodus, but in the form of four people. Um, and in the Bible, the wilderness is called the test. Their, their time in the wilderness, their time in the desert is, is called the time of the test. And our characters in this chapter are tested. They're tested in their physical endurance. They're tested in their willpower. They're tested in their moral strength to keep going for the sake of saving others. And this journey uh, is part of what shapes them. This journey is part of what takes them from being, it's, it's kind of a growth narrative in a lot of ways, from being the people who in their minds probably couldn't do it to having done it. And that is what shapes them into what will hopefully come through the rest of this book is them taking their final forms, so to say, as, as the heroes, as the completed characters. If, if every step of this journey is shaping their character in a certain way, this is revealing certain parts of their character that are going to be shaped by the fact that they had to push themselves to exhaustion and had to push through this, this test. Well, Chase, we've made our way through the desert. We've property propped and thubbity thubbed. Uh, and now it's time before we uh, sink our way into this beautiful oasis to tell you a little bit about uh, where you can find. Uh, uh, we are anywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, anywhere else. Uh, we'd love it if you could share this podcast with your friends. If you like it, um, you know, share us, uh, you know, tell us, tell your friends about us. We'd love to be able to reach more people. You know, leave us a five-star rating. It really helps out. Uh, Go follow us on Instagram and at the Chronicles of Podcasts. Interact with things we're doing. Let us know the things that you like. Let us know the things you don't like. If there's a segment that you'd love to see on here, if you'd love to interact with us in any way, let us know. And we'd love to be able to to make that happen. Uh, But in the meantime, you stay safe. Drink lots of water, hydrate or dihydrate. That's a, as a that's my my go to. That's my motto. Uh, and uh, you know, if you if you find yourself in the desert, uh, make sure you appreciate the sand because and when you're on an adventure, you don't really get to admire, you know, the beauty around you. So take a look at the sand. Think about its sounds, its smells, uh, the way it looks, it feels. Just think about all of it because you're going to have a lot of time. I hate sand. Do you also like how uh, I was just, I had like a coughing fit in the middle of you doing the summary and was like, gotta go get some water. It I mean, just be fair. It was the longest summary ever. And <laughs> I was, I, I basically was like, wasn't even a quarter of the way through by the time we got back. I was looking through it. and I was like, good God, Chase, you gave such a long time, but it was needed. The, the but problem like, is there was, there wasn't much to cut out because it was yeah. so much like specific planning. Like yeah. to leave one part out would have been would have left out the big stuff. Yeah.